Hey, welcome to the Church Home Podcast with Judah Smith. Uh, that's me, Judah. I am so excited to share this message about Jesus and his love for you. I really hope it's a personal encouragement to you. Hey, let us know if we can serve you at churchhome.org. Join us on Pasture Chat uh, on the app. We want to make sure that you are cared for and loved without any further delay. Let's jump in. Here's the message. I want to take you to a portion of scripture, and I brought my Bible this time, um, and I want to take you to a portion of scripture in Luke chapter 18, and I'm going to set up this passage by reading why Jesus authored um, some of these stories and examples. In, In this particular point, he authors this one specific story about a tax man and a Pharisee who pray at the temple. And it says this, he told his next story to some who were complacently pleased, Luke chapter 18. He told this next story to some who were complacently pleased with themselves over their moral performance and looked down their noses at the common people. Let's look at that again. So this next story is for everyone who's ever been complacently pleased with themselves over who they voted for and the network of news they watch. Oh, wait, that's uh, that's not in there. Oh, man, I totally. Let me, I'm my bad, guys. Let me read that again. He told this next story to some who are complacently pleased with themselves over their church attendance and That's not what it says. Let me read that again. He told this next story to some who were complacently pleased with themselves over their sexual purity. No, that's not what it says. He told this next story to some who were complacently pleased with themselves because they gave a lot of money away. That's not what it says either. All right, you get the point. These stories... Are, this story is for those who are complacently pleased with themselves over their moral performance and look down their noses at the common people. Do you have a them in your life? Do you have a them? You know, an us and a them, an us and a them. What's weird is that orientation has been made famous almost by Christians. We're famous for that. We're famous for the us and them. Now, whether or not you were a part of that or I contributed to that, the point is it's kind of what we're known for in the Western world is the us and them or even around the world, it's the us and them. It's like, are you Christian, right? Are you Catholic? Are you a believer? Are you, oh, you're not, oh, oh, you're one of them. There's a lot of us and them in the world, but ironically, of all people on the planet, those of us who worship the creator and the designer, we are supposed to accept, adapt to, transform to, and change to this idea that all people are God's sons and daughters. This is actually imperative. One old mystic and writer said the greatest contribution that evangelicalism or Christianity has ever made to the modern world is the understanding that the divine loves the created. And if the divine loves the created, then the created ought to love the created. But see, if you don't believe God loves you, you oftentimes won't love what he made. So the key to unpacking your elitism is you have to learn to accept that God loves you, not in your elite state, but he loves you in your real state, which is broken, desperate, and dare I say, disgusting. Am I the only one that has disgusting thoughts? Am I the only one? Apparently I am. It's amazing how quiet. Did you see that? That was interesting. Some of you are like, oh no, we're in the wrong church. The preacher has disgusting thoughts. 
oh, we've got to go somewhere else. <laughs> Some of you have had disgusting thoughts since you've been here. Don't look around. Look straight ahead. No one will know that it's you. Right? We, we are desperate. We are disgusting. Oh, we are loved and we are cared for and we are unique and we're an original. If you're an infinite value, but, but you know what I mean. Being honest about who we really are. But we don't do that, do we? We get complacently pleased with ourselves. Complacency is an interesting thing. I, I wrote this down. Complacency literally means self-satisfied and an unawareness of your personal deficiencies. Have you ever been complacent in your Christianity? Complacent Christians, that's a thing. Self, not satisfied by God, satisfied by me. Satisfied by my performance this week. Come on, I'm not the only fickle person in here. That on good weeks, when I show up at a gathering like this, it's like, this is amazing. Bad weeks, if I do show up at gatherings like this, it's like, I failed again. My weekly performance, let alone daily performance, affects me dramatically because my performance wants to tell me every time that I've changed, I'm elite, I'm different, and I'm better. It's crazy. There's probably not a day in my life that I have not lived in 43 years on this planet where at one point during my day, I was leading myself to believe that I was better than another human being. I don't think there's been a day. I'm being so serious. I, I get the weirdest things. I'll see someone consuming hydrogenated oils and I'll feel better than them. I'm, you think I'm joking. I'll see someone eating high fructose corn syrup and I'll be like, grow up. It's 2022, do the math, right? Like, I'm so serious. It, it can be the silliest of things, right? It can be the silliest of things that somehow... I tell myself I'm better than someone else. The challenge is that mentality leads you to complacency. Complacency implies self-satisfaction, an unawareness of your own deficiencies. And here's what's wrong with complacency. It's very stagnant and stationary and you stop growing. And that's what happens to your journey. You're wondering why you're not growing. God, why aren't you growing me? He's like, well, I want to grow you, not the part you play. I want to grow you. So a lot of us, it's funny how we're like, I want to grow spiritually. And what we think that means is I need to give myself to the spiritual disciplines. Oh, just everybody relax for a second. Everyone is so in love with their spiritual goals and their spiritual disciplines. And I think it's about as adorable as your kids' scribbles when they were kids and they would come home from school and say, Daddy, look what I drew. And you're like, oh, what is it? That's your spiritual disciplines, and that's about what they amount to before God. I don't mean prayer and connecting with God. I mean the act of prayer as a sign and a signal that you're spiritually elite. That's not what prayer's for. Prayer is a cry. It's a primal cry from a broken heart to the divine. Oh, God, have mercy, right? But we think, oh, I, I want to grow. I, I had, a, I had a, a pastor the other day ask me, what are you doing to disciple men? I didn't like the question. I didn't like the question because 
there are certain scriptures we like to emphasize and others we like to ignore. So when the discipleship concept comes up, what we like to emphasize based on recent church, modern, modern church history, is that discipleship is the act of a few spiritually mature people who sit other people down, insert Mr. Miyagi and the karate kid. And that's kind of what our thought is. It's like, I'm going to teach you how to you know, work on a fence, and I'm going to teach you how to catch a fly. I'm going to teach you how, right? And it's like, it's like we become like Miyagi, and we're like training people in our spiritual ways. And, the, and, then, and then we ignore scriptures like this. You'll have no need of a teacher, for my spirit will be upon you and within you, and he will show you and reveal to you all the things concerning me, says the Lord. So my answer to this pastor was, I, well, we obviously really depend on the Holy Spirit. He's pretty good at being God. <laughs> he didn't like that. He wanted to know what our classes were. He wanted to know what my programs were. Because we're still believe, we still believe that discipleship is, is gates you walk through and spiritual disciplines you participate with, which, which lead you to grow spiritually. And I think what we need to assess, and I'm just getting very honest today, is that true spiritual growth ultimately kind of culminates in this idea of walking in love. So you will know that you are maturing spiritually when love becomes your priority. And when love is not your priority, you need to know that you're not growing like you think you are. Like, for instance, if your spiritual maturity has brought you to further definition and categorizing human beings, the us's and the them's, you've actually not grown spiritually. You've just watched enough news, right? Now, I love you, and we're just having some fun, and, you know, take this, take this lightly. Some of you are really taking this to heart. If the shoe fits, you know, whatever. But it is funny when we talk about spiritual growth. How much time are you spending in prayer? I'll never forget. I've told you this before. When I told my friend, are you spending an hour? And in his response, he had just met Jesus. He's like, I didn't time my prayers. Should I do that? And I was like, who's the dummy here? It might not be my friend who just met Jesus. It might be me. Because I put an arbitrary timetable to the prayer, thinking that somehow that within itself could define the value and the spiritual development and growth of an individual. It's very interesting how we get complacently satisfied with ourselves, complacently satisfied. My goal as your preacher, my goal as the uh, uh, primary teacher and communicator of sound doctrine, biblical truth, and ultimately the gospel story, uh, my job ultimately is to facilitate environments where you can further connect and deepen your intimacy with Jesus. My goal is not to give you Bible knowledge, for even the Bible says Bible knowledge can puff up. You know, you know, the people who knew the Old Testament the most were most responsible for crucifying the Messiah. <laughs> right? I mean, it gets kind of wild when you really put your mind around it. That's right. The Pharisees and Sadducees, most of which would have had the first five books of the Torah, that is the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, memorized word for word and verbatim and could not see God when he showed up in front of them. So this isn't who can quote the Scripture the best. This is, in fact, understanding that Scripture is a means to knowing the man. 
in the person of Jesus. And when you know him, you love him and you love what he loves. And do you know what he loves the most? People. So loving your neighbor is a way you love God and love yourself. When you don't love your neighbor, you need to check in with how you love God and how you love yourself. You hear what I'm saying? You know what I love about being 43 is I've done this enough that, that, that even what I prepare gets interrupted by all the things and journeys that I've had. I like this. When I was 23, I couldn't preach like this. But now that I'm 43, I like this. This is fun. It's fun to look at you and say, I've experienced some things and I'm just going to talk from it for just a moment. I want to love my neighbor. And we think programs will help you. Like Church Home is going to do a new initiative. It's called Love Your Block. And we're all going to love our block. So we have six months of loving our block because it's a new program Church Homes experienced. And that's not the goal. The goal is to actually be in love with people who you live by. Find out their names because they're fellow humans. Take it as a nod from God that if you're living by them, it's because you're supposed to be around them. Can I get you anything? Are you all right? How are your kids doing? Right? But we've lost some of that. And now we would, you know, rather spend time at conferences and retreats and advances and never even meet our neighbors. Or maybe that's just me. It dawned on me one day that as a preacher and a professional pastor, I was in services more than I was in the lives of my neighbors. And I just started to wonder, I don't know if that's the priority of God. I think that's more the priority of the programming of the church. But what's God's priority? Right? And when you all of a sudden start to realize who you really are, which is super average and super normal and super desperate and super broken and super judgmental. I love, I love these conversations. Like, I can't stand judgmental people. Wait a minute. Did you just hear that? Wait a minute. Come on, man. We're smarter than this. We're in Seattle. We're the most educated state in the union. State? Seattle state? Washington. You know, like, you get it. Right? But... I just can't, judgmental people suck. I think we just became that, right? Aren't we fickle? Aren't we funny? Them, them is you. You are them, them are you, and we are the same. And in fact, we are desperate. Jesus tells this story about um, the Pharisee and the tax man and this, 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 uh, Bringing them together is such a stark difference. One makes a list of all bad people that he's not like, and he thanks God he's not like him. And then he, at the end of his prayer, which is really more of a prayer to himself than to God, he says, I fast twice a week and I tithe all my income. Like God's in heaven going, no way. I didn't know that. I hadn't checked with the budget yet. I had no idea you were contributing that much. Well, that changes everything. And then the tax man is in the same temple. He can't even lift up his head and he says, God, have mercy. Forgive me. I'm a sinner. Jesus says it's the tax man that received righteousness, not the Pharisee. So length of prayer isn't the goal. Desperation is the goal. Now, this is a very interesting development because it's not always like this, but from this portion of Scripture, is it an accident that the very next scene we go to is that Jesus is having a spontaneous meet and greet 
It's a meet and greet. And the meet and greet is spontaneously some parents start bringing their small children to Jesus. Now, if you know anything about antiquity, you understand that babies, children, toddlers were non-humans in those days. And that's really hard for us to comprehend, but they were considered to be less than. They were considered to be not, you know, seen and not heard, okay? It was, it, they, they, they weren't, you know, there was no concept of like, you know, the children are important. Let's care for them. Let's love them. Let's speak life to them. No, no, it was just like, those are kids. Those are kids. Life is about adults, not kids. We don't care about kids. And you can see this because these 12 brilliant, sophisticated spiritual men that roll with Jesus immediately break up the meet and greet. And they say, people brought babies to Jesus, hoping he might touch them. When the disciples saw it, they stood them off. This is right after the tax man's prayer and the Pharisees' prayer. Jesus called them back. Think about that. Here's the disciples going, hey, 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 come on, come on, mom, grab your kid. Uh, he's got a runny nose. This is ridiculous. We can't, Jesus can't be getting sick. Let's get out of here. It's like, I don't get sick. Okay, never mind. Come on, let's, let's get out of here. You know, come on, come on. And, and, and the Bible says Jesus is, no, no, mom's dad's bring him back. That had to be an awkward moment for the guys. <laughs> hey, get out of here. Wait, what'd you say? Don't get between me and them. The disciples step back. Don't get between me and them. Moms, dads, come on back. Hey, 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 no, no, come on back. You guys over there, sir, sir, in the brown. Yeah, Jack, come on, bring your, bring your son back. No, it's okay. I want to bless him. Okay. Can you imagine the parents walking by the 12 disciples? We're like, make it quick. <laughs> he doesn't have that much time. And they're walking by like, oh, sorry, sorry. It's still kind of like that, isn't it? We still got to walk by all his representatives to get to him. And boy, is that awkward. Hey, who'd you vote for? All right, make it quick. Jesus says, no, 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 come on, come on, come on. And he, let the children alone. Don't, don't get between me and them. These children are the kingdom's pride and joy. Non-people are the pride and joy of the king's domain. Wow. Unless you accept God's kingdom in the simplicity of a child, you'll never get in. One translation says you'll never understand what I'm doing. You'll never see what I'm doing. One of the aspects of desperation is not just that you pray like a tax man, but it's, or worship like a tax man, but you are to receive like a child. You're to receive the kingdom like a child. Now, you heard me talk like this before, but I can't help myself. One of my favorite things about kids, when they're real young, and they don't know that, you know, they're being traumatized by you, the parent, and me, the dad, is, you know, I'll, you can imagine how many times I yell in our family. I love these families who are like, and we made a commitment the entire kid's childhood, we would never raise our voice. And I'm like, I think I was meant to be a parent in Jersey. Like, this is not going to work for me. I, I ended up a parent in Bellevue, and this is just not the right space for me. Like, the, the, the louder I get, the more of God I feel. You know what I mean? Shut up, son! I'm in charge. And I'm like, oh, that feels good. I feel the Holy Ghost, you know, like. 
And that's something you, I just have to take to the Lord, you know? But like, volume is my friend. I use it to my own advantage, okay? So like, we, 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 we raise our voice, whatever, but after I'm kind of done, and I always end up apologizing, I'm the most apologizing person, and I mean that only because that's how much I do dumb things, and our kids are going to be okay, and we're already signing them up for therapy. It's not a big deal. Um, start them early. But I remember when they were babies, and I tried, you know, my dad did this, and so I had a head start. I saw my father ask for forgiveness of his kids, and so I thought that that's what dads do. Um, so you know, I sound very noble. I'm not. I was blessed to have a dad who constantly, when he hurt us, he would ask for forgiveness and wait for a reply. So I started this early with my kids. I'd say, will you forgive me? You know, Zion, my now 17-year-old, would be like three or four. And his answer still rings in my ears. It would go something like this. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Hey, Zai, buddy, I, I'm, you know, dad, I got an anger problem and I'm taking it to Jesus and I break golf clubs and tennis rackets and I think I broke your heart. And man, I'm really sorry. You know, will you forgive me? Yeah. Hey, dad, can we go get ice cream? Wait a minute. Are you using this moment to your advantage? <laughs> Absolutely. Let's go. Um, but then it, like a child. Yeah. What if you receive God's love with a yeah? Are you loved? Yep. Are you forgiven? Yep. I heard you had a pretty rough day yesterday. Were you discouraged? I was. How do you feel now? I feel pretty good. Does God love you? Yep. A lot. Wow. How many days does it take for you to be removed from a dumb decision till you start letting yourself be loved again? because you're an adult and your performance-based life keeps informing the next step you take. You know how many things you never did because you didn't think you deserved it? So I I had good news for you. That's not how God works. (laughs) I love having these conversations where it's like, you know, Judah, and I know God's blessed you because, you know, you're a man of God and you're whatever. And I'm like, hold on a second. If, if you think people live and die based on their performance, all of us should get the air sucked out of our system instantly. <laughs> and I'm out. You know, like this is, who amongst us can stand? I'll say it like this. Who amongst us can breathe if we are here on the merits of our daily performance? None of us. Are we still led to believe that our life is the result of our own personal performance? Grow up, Christian. I love you enough to tell you to grow up. Don't be such a child. Wait a minute, this whole message is about a child. That's right. Quit being childish and be childlike. A childlike with wonder in your eyes. Remember when you were a kid, or you remember taking a kid or an uncle or an aunt, you take a small kid to somewhere like a Disneyland or a Space Needle or, or the Troll downtown? That's a little scary. But the point is, the gum wall, you ever see through the eyes of a child? Wow. Mickey Mouse walks Main Street. Dad, it's Mickey. Oh, it's one of 17. It's just an employee. You know, like... 
It's meant, wow, the wonder, the wow, the overwhelm. Unless you become like a child, you won't understand what I'm doing. Receiving is an interesting thing because we're more pre-wired for earning and not receiving. And some of you are still orienting your daily life around earning and not receiving. But desperation will help you to be a receiver more than an earner. It'll help you be Christian more than American. I'm proud to be American. I love this country. It's a new country, and countries don't last always. So I'm like, don't you say that about the United States. We want it to last forever. It won't. That I know. The stars and stripes, that's ah, temporary. Well, God has blessed this country. Oh, he most certainly has. This temporary thing we call the United States of America. I wish we were united. It's a great title. Like, my, am I loyal to the United States of America? I mean, yeah, I guess, in the Olympics and stuff, sure. Yeah, I love this country. We're so blessed. Like, my citizenship, according to the New Testament, is first and foremost and eternally in the king's domain, the kingdom of God, which oftentimes is quite starkly different from the kingdom of man known as the United States of America. They are different, friends. They always have been, always will be. The kingdom of God is where the king rules. And it cannot be dictated and determined by the borders put up by man. But in that kingdom, desperation and receptivity is far more valuable than earning, deserving, and warranting. But we persist, don't we? And like a grown adult, we keep telling ourselves that you get out what you put in. People want the blessing of God, but they're not honoring God's principles. Let's dig down on that thought just for a moment. How many principles have you kept that has invoked the blessing of God on your life? Because in 1968, you were hooked on drugs, but we forgot about that, didn't we? Because now you've been in church 42 years. And now our morals tell us that. Come on, man. Do you think we're blessed because we earned it or deserved it? Somebody, an old preacher, not an old preacher, he's actually a young preacher, said, what's the best thing you did to prepare for ministry? I said, uh, be born to Wendell and Jenny Smith. Well, I don't, that's not my dad. Super sorry. Life's not fair. I was born into six generations of preachers. Started preaching when I was nine. Preached my first full-length sermon when I was 13. Did my first week of revival meetings when I was 16. The best thing I did was have the best dad and the best preacher on the planet to teach me and train me. And guess what I did? Didn't earn any of it. That's my testimony. I don't know what your testimony is, but my testimony is I was just like, uh, it was about birth for me. And you know what's helped me? Is to use that same example in the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is not about worth, it's about birth. You must be 
born again, the scripture says. <laughs> can, can a man be put back into his mother's womb? What kind of statement is that? With man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. I will birth you into my family by the finished work of Jesus. <laughs> I was born October 9th, 1978 in the wonderful city of Portland, Oregon. Guess how much of that I decided on myself? None of it. My name is Judah Elwood Smith. I was born on my grandfather's birthday, who was an immoral preacher. Slept with a lot of secretaries, my grandfather, and they named me Elwood on his birthday. And then my dad found out about his dad later and was like, yo, my bad. And I was like, dad, yo, dad, come on, man. <laughs> That's my story. But I tell you what, every single day I live with Elwood as my middle name and my birthday to remind me that if not for Jesus, I'd be sleeping with secretaries everywhere too. And we don't use that term anymore. That's my grandfather used that term, secretary. But, but I'm not. I just want you to know, church, I'm not. I'm only having sex with Chelsea. And I'm going to keep reminding you of that. If I stop reminding you of that, somebody look into what I'm doing, okay, and where I am. But, but like, I, I want to be a new kind of Elwood by the grace of God. People are like, oh, I'm not a seven-generation preacher. It just means that my family's more dysfunctional than yours because we have pomp, circumstance, and pretense. That's why I love some of my buddies' families, just as godless as they come, and they tell you what they think. I'm like, give me some of that. That's refreshing. My family is cloaked in religiosity and code words and inside language. Oh, I, we all just broken. <laughs> and we're all just kids who need to be accepted and loved. Jesus says, let the little children come unto me. If I said receive like a child or enforce rules like an elitist, which one describes you more? Are you a rule keeper? And do those rules make you feel elite? Because it's a mirage. And you're being lied to by you. And so am I. The rules I keep. You know what's silly? Is I think I'm better than Elwood. But I am Elwood. That's my story. And I think that God wanted to give this little kid from Portland, Oregon a gift. And when I was 16 and my dad finally told me, I thought it was a curse. I said, I'm doomed. You named me his name and I'm born on his birthday. And as I've grown in my relationship with God, do you know what October 9th represents? Desperation. When my middle name comes up, it means desperation. Because if not for the grace of God, that is completely who I am. Self-serving, selfish, and a man capable of ruining the thing he loves the most, which is his family. Have you embraced who you really are? Or are we still pretending? So, 
I say we receive the kingdom like a child. You know what I love about kids? They don't have a resume yet. They don't have a portfolio yet. They can't tell you what degree they earned. They can't tell you what they've read and learned. They can't quote great philosophers and poets. They just say things like, yep. Dad, can we go get some cookies and creams? All right, buddy. Dad, I really like orange sherbet. Now, can we get some orange sherbet, Dad, please? Okay, buddy. I remember when my kids lost their little accent and their lisp. Worst day of my life. My little L dog, who's now six foot four, 185 pounds, he uh, he used to say, "Will for you give me?" I'd say, "Now, Elliot, say the words." He'd say, "Daddy, will for you give me?" And one time, Zion, the older brother, goes, "Hey, dude, it's will you forgive me?" I go, "Don't you ever stop!" I want him to be 42, talking about will for you give me to his wife. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't ever want him to grow up. And in a way, God wants us to stay there. You know what I love about kids? They don't have a portfolio. They don't have a resume. The ego hasn't been injected yet with artificial concepts and performances. They are dependent. You know what's cool about kids? They're always learning. You know what's cool about kids? They know they're going to grow. Growing is inevitable as a kid. It's inevitable. In fact, when kids have pain, we all go, ah, it's growing pains. And if we're not careful, we think the whole goal is getting to a point where you don't grow anymore. That's when you know you're not a kid. When you stopped assuming you were always going to be growing. Um, how long has it been since some of your theology changed, adult? The Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Death, burial, resurrection, ascension, glorification. These are the tenets of our faith and the foundations of our belief system. But make no mistake about it. We are growing from strength to strength, glory to glory, which means we are becoming more like him every day. We are looking more like Jesus every day. The implication there is change and growth. The things adults hate the most. Growth, change, taxes, and the other political party. Those are the things adults hate the most. I am preaching. I really am, right? I really am, actually. Matter of fact, the prayer team has been praying for years, and Lord, bless him from his own mouth. Well, that prayer got answered today. I feel real blessed with my content. <laughs> Kids are all ears. Kids will sit at your feet, crisscross applesauce. Kids will get a carpet square. Give a kid a carpet square, see what happens. He'll be like, what? In this country? All right. Now, I can't be doing crisscross applesauce because my legs don't do that anymore. <laughs> but my heart does, okay? My heart is still crisscross applesauce. Lord knows. <sighs> it's the rules that give us instant gratification. 
It's the keeping of rules that makes the ego of man rejoice. It feels good. I remember the first time I refed a basketball game. I went to Issaquah High School and the varsity team, you heard me, the varsity team, which I started for multiple years. I don't want to get into it. But the varsity team was responsible for doing refereeing for the, 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 the kids, the kids' leagues. And I'll never forget when I got a whistle and I got the referee stripes and all of a sudden we're in these gyms and I'm like, foul, foul, two shots. And all of a sudden some parents started popping off. Hey, come on, rep. And I was like, what'd you say to me? Who said that? You know, and you're like 17 with power for the first time. And you're like, you're out, sir. You're out. I'm like throwing out dads. You know, it's like, oh, bro, this guy, this guy, who's the new guy? You know, new money. Who, he, he just got here, clearly, right? Boy, we love power, don't we? Boy, we love the whistle, the power. You know, we're the gatekeeper of our communities. Well, we need to restore this. This is what we, what's really important is we need righteousness again in the country. Oh, we do. But we see, when you say righteousness and I say righteousness, we mean two different things because I'm talking about the imputed gift of righteousness that only comes through the performance of Jesus. And what you're talking about is rules, which never gets you to righteousness. It only gets you to appearances. And the first part of the book is about rules. And the second part of the book is about relationship. But see, living your life by relationship will never please your ego like the rules. Because the rules, when you cross that T, come on somebody, and you dot that I, you can't wait for somebody to ask why you're so blessed. I've been around this church my whole life, guys. I was 13 when this community started, so I know, okay? I might be the oldest old-timer left in this whole church. Louis Bermond is right up there. No disrespect, Louis, okay? But we're in this together, all right? There's only but a few of us left, all right? But I was 1992 in this church. That's right, 1992. That's why I'm watching all the old Magic Johnson productions. Louis, you know, I know you played basketball against Magic, and you know I think about you every time. I'm watching all the documentaries, and Magic is hot again. Now, the, the early 90s, and I'm watching this, and it's like nostalgia. So I'm watching this, and my dad's like, Dad, who's that? I'm like, that's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. What do you mean, who's that? What's wrong with you? 1992. I know enough to know that it, it was... God, who did all this, it was the goodness of God. It was the blessing of God. But I know enough, and I've been around church enough to know that the problem with grace and the gospel is it's not pleasing to the flesh. And so that's why, like, I'll preach places sometimes and people will be like, Judah, can you give us more practical handles? Like, it's my job to expound on what the scripture does not. <laughs> he loves you. Well, how and what, what he, he, I mean, he loves you. When Mary sat at his feet and Martha was in the kitchen working for God, Martha said, tell Mary to help. And Jesus said, I won't. She's doing what I made her to do. She's letting me talk to her and love her and wash over her with my words. 
Where was Mary? Crisscross applesauce. Where's the church most of the time? In the kitchen cooking for God. Talking about we need to get more ministers, people who will get in here and actually do something for the Lord. I'm so sick and tired of all these people. All they do is sit at home and watch our app. All they do is serve themselves. And we out here trying to help God do what God does. And I just wish, uh, taste this for me. Is it good? Okay, great. Great. Everybody okay? All right. All right. All right. God, we need more laborers. I need more kids seated in front of me. Because you won't walk right until you sit right. The reason you don't walk in love is you don't sit in his love. You learned about his love. So we walk on mission and we walk with rules and we walk with but we don't walk with brokenness and desperation. Because if you're always in the kitchen work cooking for God, you end up thinking this life is about you. And if I learned anything in these 28 years I've been a part of this church, it's that life isn't about you. It's about him. Receive like a child. When's the last time something little wowed you about God? Just wowed you. Wow. I love it. Wow. I love hummingbirds. My dad loved hummingbirds. And I don't know if you have friends like I have friends, but I have friends who still believe in reincarnation. And I don't know, like, I don't really correct them because they're like, I I've had a deer one time come on my front lawn. And I was like, dad, is that you? And I was like, I don't know if that's how it works totally, but whatever helps, you know? So I'm not sure I think my dad's an actual hummingbird. I don't think I see that in scripture. But when I see hummingbirds, I think about my dad, you know, because that was his favorite bird, just hovers and glistens. And the other day I caught a hummingbird in a rare environment. He was in the tree and he was still, he or she, and they were bouncing around. And I couldn't help myself because I started, I look at this hummingbird and I thought, you named that bird in that tree that I can see through my front window. Who are you, God? You know every limb on that random tree outside in front of my house. You know where that bird was born. You know the mom and dad hummingbird, and you know the duration of life of that bird, and you watch over that bird, and you painted that bird with its colors so that it would shimmer and shine in the sunlight. And you know who he made that bird for? Himself. And he takes pleasure in that bird. How much more, the scripture says, is his eye upon you? Does he find fulfillment in you? Oh, man of God, oh, woman of God, take a break from your spiritual kitchen. Stop cooking. In fact, let him fix you a meal. Let him feed you. Let him make you lie down. Can I translate that for you? Let him make you take a day off, America. It's about the kingdom of God.
It's about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God implies that time off and margin is worship. When you do nothing, sometimes you do something very significant. When's the last time you did nothing with God? I'm being so serious. So I'm like, Judah is so like emotional. And I know that he loves these mystical, magical terms. I have friends who are always like, Judah, your preaching is not very practical. She's not very, you're not a practical person. Fine, sue me. (laughs) But it can't all be practical and cerebral. It's the soul of a man that cries out for God. Receive like a child. Don't say so much, listen. Don't speak so much, learn. Don't stand so much, sit. Don't lead so much, lay down. Come on, sheep. Eat from the green pastures. Let the still water lull you into rest. Recognize there is only but one who neither slumbers nor sleeps, for he holds the world in the palm of his hands. <laughs> Receive like a child. Receive like a child. There's so much more to say, but I'll end with this. The very next passage, same, same chapter, and I don't think it's an accident. The very next passage says, one day, one of the local officials asked him, good teacher, what must I do to deserve eternal life? And I love this. Notice what Jesus is emphasizing. He says, why are you calling me good? No one is good, only God. 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 You don't understand that phrase. You won't understand the gospel. No one is good, but God. No one is. We don't believe that in America. We don't believe that in America. We believe there are good people and bad people. And that's where we're wrong. That's not biblical. There's only one good person, and he's perfect, and his name is Jesus. The rest of us, we're bad. So stop with the good good guy, bad guy. That's stuff that made movies. It's not real. We're all bad. Well, church home is for good people. There is no such thing. We're all bad. We're all the bad people. (laughs) But the one person is so good and so perfect that he can take all the consequences and outcome of our bad, take it in his body, in his sacrificial death, so all of us who do bad and are bad can now get good. Because he who is perfect became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. He said, you just called me good. Let me be very clear. You just called me God. Because when you say good, you mean God. Because that's how the world works. There is one good, and that's partly what makes him God. He's good all the way through. Good to the core. And he says, you know the commandments, no illicit sex, no killing, no stealing, no lying, honor your father and mother. Now again, people take the transitionary teachings of Jesus and they think to themselves that that is his emphasis, but bear with me, I'm gonna show you something. And, 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 and listen, 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 this is so human, this is so human. I have kept those for as long as I can remember. Well, clearly your memory only lasts a couple of days. I love Jesus because he's like, okay. He doesn't go, no, you haven't. And I know that and you know that. He goes, okay. He says, then there's one more thing. I want you to sell everything you own and give it away to the poor 
and you'll have riches in heaven, then come follow me. Next verse. This was the last thing the official expected to hear. He was very rich and became terribly sad because he was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let them go. So here's my challenge. You want to use the secret sauce? You want to be a desperate person? Let go like a follower. Or the other option is hold on tight like you're entitled to it. Now, I'll prove this to you. That's exactly what was in play here. See, the rich man in antiquity believed that his riches were the result of someone in his family or himself who had lived such an honorable life that the divine had given him more money than others because of their morality. So actually in antiquity, not too dissimilar to modern times, is it was led, we were led to believe that wealth, actually money in the bank, was a tangible sign of the fact that God had blessed that person more than others because they had done something worthy of that kind of blessing. And do you know what Jesus is doing? He's saying, that's not true. That's not true. Now, do I think money is a blessing? Of course. Oxygen's a blessing. A job is a blessing. This room is a blessing. Of course. It's all the direct result of God. But he said, no, that's not the orientation. That's not how my kingdom works. So the rich man would have had status in the social setting because the rich man was thought to believe that his family had done something moral or elite, and that's why they had money. And do you know what? I have seen the same things today. And I'm here to tell you that time and chance happened to them all. And sometimes you just have more money, and it's got very little to do with God. So we can't add up the score the way we do. We've got to let God do that. So he says, now, now here's what other preachers, preachers go to another extreme and they say, see, money's bad. Everybody with money needs to give it away. Really? That doesn't work because watch this at the end of the passage. Peter says, I love Peter. He's like, hey, 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 Jesus, you know we left everything, right, to follow you? Hey, Jesus, we left everything to follow you, you know? Listen, Jesus, he says, yes, I know, you won't regret it. No one has sacrificed home, spouse, brothers, sisters, parents, children, whatever, will lose out. It will all come, look, 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 look. It will all come back to you, multiply many times over when? When? In your lifetime. I'm gonna hook you up, I'm gonna take care of you. Now, this is no promise of riches and wealth. This is a promise of supernatural provision. But he says in this lifetime, and then he says, and the bonus of eternal life, which is more than a bonus, you know, right? But that's how we translate it in this particular passage. So the goal isn't like God's against you having money. God's against you thinking your money makes you better than others. And when it does, he says, give it all away. When you think your status is a direct correlation to your performance, you need to get rid of your status because it is keeping you from the secret sauce of desperation. So instead of letting go like a follower, you're holding on tight to what you're entitled. This is my money. No, it's not. You live on borrowed breath. Let that sink in. Do you know when man became a living being? When God went, and man went, 
Welcome to the definition of your life. Borrowed breath. Everything you have is borrowed. I know you bought that home, but if you understand economics, come on, somebody. Someone taught me one time. I was like, yeah, I own this home. And then they're like, well, do you still make payments? I was like, yeah, oh, the bank owns your home. And I was like, what does that mean? Oh, it means that if you don't pay this month and next month, they'll come and just take it from you because they own it. And I was like, oh. So I love how we're like, I never lease. I only buy. Yeah, but like, did you get a mortgage? Because you don't own it yet. And you may not own it your entire lifetime. And if you don't pay it off and you give it to the next generation, it's a blessing, but more like a burden. Right? Like, it's all borrowed. This money, it's, oh, it's borrowed. My dad used to say, here's the best way to treat your money. He said, it's fun touching it on the way by, but that should be about it. Y'all remember this? The, the Bushers, you remember this. Dr. Mall, you remember this. My dad would say, here's the fun. When you make money and have money, just do this on the way by. Oh, wow, that's so fun. Oh, man. Oh, oh. oh this is so, all right, here we go. All right, don't hold on too long now. Come on, child. Let go like a follower. When did you get out in front of Jesus? We lost what old, old, old Apostle Paul used to say. He made plans like this. He said, I'm going to go here if the Lord wills, and then I'm going to go there if that's what God permits, and then I'm going to do this if that's God's plan, because there was always a caveat in Paul's life, and that was he's out in front of me, and he's out leading me, so at any moment he might take a different turn than my plan. But man plans his way. The Lord directs his steps, so I let go of next year. I let go of the years to come. There are people here up under the sound of my voice and tomorrow has been crippling you. The future has been overwhelming you, but I'm here to tell you, you are only responsible for stepping in the next footstep you see right behind Jesus. You are not designed to be the leader of your own life. You are not the captain of your own ship. You were made to ride shotgun at most. Let him drive. So quit acting like you got the wheel in your hands because you don't. Christians out here in these streets talking about, hey, get out of here. You want to, I'll give you my seven keys to success and how to drive your spiritual life into all the blessings of God. Talking about. In my 80s, I did this. And in the 90s, I did this. And early 2000s, I started tithing. And the Lord started... Yeah. This is what your life looks like. Where are we going? God! Ah! Where are we going? What's this? This is what I have for you. This is amazing. I can't wait to tell everybody how I earned this. The Father is so kind. He's so long-suffering. We jump out of, the, out of the passenger and we go running to tell everybody, do you know how I got here? Do you want to know how I got here? I went to a bunch of church services and conferences and I read my Bible and I prayed really, really good. And if you do that, you'll get here too. Meanwhile, he has to remind you to put on your seatbelt. Oh, yes. Go ahead and drive. We'll drive when I say so. Yes, sir. Where are we going to go? I'm not going to tell you. Well, before we start moving, shouldn't we know? Nah. 
talk to Abraham. He went out not knowing where he was going. Do you know why? Because he wasn't driving. But us Americans now, don't interrupt our plans. It's my plan. This is where I'm going. But the old saints used to say things like, well, if that's what the driver wants, if that's what the driver determines, and you know where it positions you and postures you? Letting go. When I was a, when I was a, I say when I was a dad, I'm still a dad. When I was a dad of small children, I got him one of those little steering wheels from Tonka Toys or like, I forget. I used to know the brands of kids' toys. I'm so sorry. Fisher Price. Does someone say Fisher Price? I respect that. That's what I was looking for. You read my mind. See, we are in connection, church. Fisher Price. And I remember my son would be in the back seat in his car seat. Now you got you know, you're 12 and you're still in a car seat. But anyways, that's beside the point. Y'all seen some of these commercials? I'm like, it looks like a young adult in that car seat. What are we doing? Some of you grew up sliding in the seat. You know, there was no such thing as a car seat. You're like, where are we going? I don't know. <laughs> now we got 18-year-olds talking about, okay, I'm in, Dad. All right, let's go. <laughs> don't get me started. This is the end of the sermon, not the fun start. I remember I gave him a little Fisher-Price steering wheel. That little, that little dude, man, thought he was driving. It was cute to me. Ah, you driving, buddy, you driving. He wasn't driving. He wasn't doing a thing to add to the drive. Well, except that he was in the car with me. And I love, the other day I planned an outing so that I could trap my 17 and 15 year old in the car for two hours. Miss Tammy, that's the, that's the whole reason I planned it. They thought it was to go somewhere and do something, but what they don't know, it was about the two hours there and the two hours home. And parents, you know what I'm talking about. I had a captive audience. And what they didn't know was I just wanted them in the car with me. Can we just be okay riding passenger with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Quit blaming me for how church home has changed. I'm not driving. <laughs> I'm kind of joking, but not really at all. I'm not driving. I thought, I thought what we were all like. And basically, thank you, man of God. Basically, that's him trying to help me land the plane. <laughs> you know what I mean? Planes are supposed to land like this. Most of the planes I land are like, like that. Fine, I'm done. <laughs> all right. Um, receive like a child and let go like a follower because that's what you are. You're a tax man, you're a child, and you're a follower. That's actually already who you are, so you don't have to do anything extra. God, I'm broken. I know. Sit down. Yes, sir. Where are we going to go? You'll see. I trust you. I trust you. Your kingdom come and your will be done. What a wonderful life. What a wonderful life. I pray today that the, um, 
that you see the king as the captain of your ship. I love his protection. I love his covering. He said, you'll run to me and my name is like a strong tower. It means when I say the Lord Jesus Christ, it's like I am put into a fortified tower just at the mention of his name. For he hides me in the shadow of his wings and I am hidden from the enemy. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me and through me, the hope of eternity. Live your life through me, Jesus. Your kingdom come. All of a sudden, my opinions, my concepts, my quirky, petty little things, I just, I just let them go and I just enjoy life. Like I'm, I'm really trying to get you to be fully human, to be fully alive, aware of the king and his kingdom. What are you so worked up about? What are you so worried about? Now, do you hear the words of Jesus? Now, now, and we're done, we're done. The chair has been removed, we are done. Jesus says, are you weary? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Are you tired of making all the decisions? Are you tired of holding on to possessions and things and money like it's yours? Oh, so you earned this. Oh, so you did this. This was your doing? This was your deeds? This is on your merit? You didn't even choose the day your brain was activated. You didn't even choose your heritage or your ethnicity. It was chosen by the fingertips of God. And he called you a wonder and a treasure. And he named you before dad did or mom did or your grandmother did. He named you. He said, that's my son. That's my daughter. You think that the voice of God at the baptism of Jesus was just for Jesus? Even Jesus prayed a prayer publicly one time and he said, I'm saying this out loud, not because Father, you need it or I need it, but I'm praying out loud because they need it. The Father said to the Son, the, one of the few times we, we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in the same scene, in the same episode, in the same space, in the same place, and the Father, there's a dove that descends from heaven while the Son is coming out of the waters, which will signify his death, burial, and resurrection, and all who believe in him will go in the same water, and they will come up with new life, and when he came up out of the water, there came a dove as a sign of the Spirit of God, and there came a booming voice from heaven and this was what the voice said this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased what if those words were for you as much as they were for Jesus for whoever is hidden in Christ your life is now Christ's life and I'm gonna tell you what you are you are the beloved of God and he is well pleased. And I got lightheaded because I can't shout that much anymore because I'm 43. I was like, oh, I almost passed out. Come on, let go now. Let go now. Let go now. Receive now. Receive now. Receive now. It's him. So I don't want you to turn this music portion into what you're going to give him.
I want you to wait and watch for what he wants to give you. Sit first, child. Sit first. Sit at his feet. You've been in the kitchen long enough. Come on into the living room. Get a, get a, get a square of carpet, crisscross applesauce, and let him love you. Come on, tax man. Come on, child. Come on, follower. Aren't we desperate? Aren't we desperate? Or is that just me? Would you close your eyes just for a moment? If you're here and you would like to receive the free gift of forgiveness that only Jesus offers, I want to give you an opportunity, whether you're in this auditorium or you're watching right now through the app, you're watching right now through YouTube, wherever you are watching, whether here, there, or anywhere, wherever you are, if you would like to receive the free gift of forgiveness that only Jesus offers, you can't earn it, deserve it, or warrant it. You just receive it. Receive it like a child. Does he love you? Yep. Will he forgive you? Yep. Is he going to never leave you? Yep. Is he always going to be there? Yep. You're his. You're his. You want that forgiveness. You want that freedom. You want to be forgiven forever for every selfish act, for every sinful act, for every hurtful act, for every wrong thought and wrong deed. You can be forgiven right now in a moment and you'll be forgiven forever and you'll spend time forever with him in eternity. If that's you and you want that in your life on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to lift up your hand and put it right back down. You know who you are. One, two, three. If that's you, just shoot up your hand. Say, that's me. I receive the forgiveness of Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You lift your hand. If you're at a park or a condominium or a friend's house or a living room, wherever you are watching this right now, you lift up your hand as well. God, thank you that your forgiveness flows freely here at church home and whom the sun sets free is free indeed. God, on behalf of this community of faith, we want to let you know that these tax men, that these children and these followers, oh, we are desperate for you. We are dependent upon you. Our eyes are on you. We're looking to you, the desire of all nations and the source of all that is good. For you are good and in you there is no shadow or variation. All you do is good. You are the personification of good and you are great and greatly to be praised.